Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. <laughs> I like the the new like little whip at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, when you don't loop it, that that is how it ends. That's it's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just that I loop it so much because I screw up so much. Um, and so as you can't, if you can't tell, uh, welcome back to to Mark's Madness podcast. Now, part of Chunkalooto, we read books. Uh, my name's David. I'm Prez. And Shigmani too is probably going to be joining us in the middle of the episode. We kind of did this last week. Maybe this is our new routine. I don't know. Uh, and we will be getting into chapter five. Fascist reaction and communist strategy, nineteen twenty four to nineteen twenty six, um, in the Gramsci Reader slide one eighteen. Before we do that, we always go into current events, and we have a little bit to talk about with Palestine. Something new has been going on. You might might have heard. Um, we're doing this on November second, and shit happens by the day, which is why the last couple episodes I've been giving the date of recording because stuff has just been going on so much. But um, the the head of the UN Human Rights chapter in New York uh, resigned in protest of how the UN is not doing anything. Uh, and if you're listening to this, you probably have you know minimal respect for the UN as an institution and see it as, you know, at best, something that's uh, hamstrung by the fact that you uh, have essentially empires deciding what can and can't be done based on, you know, the UN Security Council canceling itself out on almost everything or at worst um, just an inept body meant to uh, further imperialism and neoliberalism. So regardless of where you fall on it, it's still pretty significant in that um, even the grounds of you know UN support in that the support of not doing anything is still support is starting to crumble with Israel. Um, so these resignations, even though they're resigning over the fact that stuff isn't happening, it's still pretty significant in terms of like bureaucratic bullshit. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like the the action itself is not that consequential, although fucking liberal history books will put it down as like the great turning point or whatever. But it's a sign of what's happening underneath the surface. Yeah. So for like every one of these people, there's probably, you know, I'll, I'll put most of the U.N. workers in good faith and say most of the people there think they're trying to, to improve the world. So you probably have a lot of people there who are like really fucking upset with what's going on. Um, and I found out today that the the head of UNICEF, her husband is a, uh, not the CEO, but one of the, it's like the chairman of BlackRock, uh, <laughs> which is, it's one, I think it's the largest investors in Israeli weaponry in the world. So that is, uh, and UNICEF is a UN that's the UN part of UNICEF. UNICEF is a UN institution. So we have a nice contradictory jumble going on. Um, and this head of UNICEF is closely linked to the Biden administration. 
Um, and North Korea today, it was also leaked by Washington, the Wall Street Journal, that North Korea is beginning to send weapons to Hamas and uh, and and other groups, including potentially Iran. So uh, it's probably going to get heated. Yeah, no, it's it's escalating. This is the other thing that gets the breakdown of a lot of those institutions is we've talked about this a lot, right? A lot of these bullshit institutions that are supposed to resolve issues or bring about peace, and they're mostly just up there. Uh, I mean, basically, democracy in a, in a quote unquote democracy in in a, a Western country is is the same thing more broadly, and these are these are microcosms of that. It gives a facade of of like doing the good and being the just cause and whatever, and it's really like what upholds the wrong and what needs to go away. But in the interim, it does kind of got to keep the peace and have the facade and have a lot of buy-in because most people involved completely believe in it and either are acting on those beliefs and on that desire for goodness, which is why things like propaganda are so important. Um, but, um, <coughs> uh, but also the people that don't believe in it and, and are cynical about it, they have to not step over the line and break that facade so that they keep up the support. This is kind of, you know, is that what we're talking about with people, you know, breaking out of, um, of the UN and, and resigning in, in the first place. Right. And so if that stuff does crumble, um, it happens, whatever happens in, in revolution, you know, revolution is not simple. It's not clean. It's not nice. It's not full of perfection, right? It is, it, it is where people are fighting <laughs> for their very, very existence um, against a force that, that either wants to subjugate them permanently or wipe them off the face of the earth. That's, that's how revolution tends to happen. Um, unless it's a counter revolution, like, like a fascist turn and, or, you know, collapse of a, a communist country. Um, but, but typically, you know, revolutions and, and even then they're bloody for other reasons, right? Um, this stuff's messy. And so when these institutions crumble also, you know, that's, that's also a very scary time, right? It's it's kind of the thing we talk about as police abolitionists um, and prison abolitionists and, and all that is like, you know, we've got to take away prison makes things worse. It's a terrible institution. We got to take away cops and prisons and things like that. But if you take them away and don't replace them with social and social institutions, if you don't have accountability for the people that are running the place that are not going to zap into nothingness the second you defund the police, right? Um, it's going to get very, very violent. They're going to react. It's going to be a free for all. And, and that happens to some degrees in these breakdowns. This is where you see the very real churning towards world war three. Yeah. And, and before we go into the reading and we're going to be going into fascism and stuff. So it's pretty relevant. These things happen very slowly. Um, you know, everyone was kind of let down that world war three didn't happen right away, but like the, World War One didn't start for a month after Archduke Ferdinand got assassinated. Um, and, you know, like Hitler invaded Germany in 1940. Germany didn't get into a war with Soviet Union until 1941. You you said Hitler invaded Germany. Hitler invaded, you mean France, I think we're going, or are we talking yeah, about the invasion of the Turn West? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was nineteen. Yeah, it was nineteen thirty-nine. They started towards Poland and then pivoted back to France with the the um, armistice that everybody bullshits into being an alliance with the Soviet Union. Yeah, yep. but like that's a period of years. Yeah, for like World War Two to really break out. 
Yeah, and I hope people are not disappointed in a lack of World War III. That is terrifying. We just need to be realistic that that's the way we're going. Yeah, and my point is rather like it can happen a lot slower than we think it will happen. Like people are not, as much as we like to think that everyone's bloodthirsty waiting to push the button to go, like people are not sitting there waiting to hit the World War III button. Um, Yeah, I think people confuse pacing of of history as something they can expect when when it comes and blows and and so like the broader thing like you're saying starting a war starting a world war that's like a glacier it's a big broad movement and yet the actual events that set it off right um you know hamas um uh going into israel um this last time or you know in this case like like resignations in in the 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 UN, you know, stuff like that. Um, you brought up the, the assassination of Archduke Archduke Ferdinand. That stuff happens in an instant, totally unexpectedly, and it the broader thing it bubbles up into doesn't immediately happen in that instance. With it, it's just connected to it broadly. Yeah, and maybe we'll get lucky and we won't go into a world war. <laughs> <laughs> please, 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 um, please. Unlikely, but please. So this this will release after the November fourth protest in DC. So I won't say go to that because it'll have already happened. But keep organizing and keep trying to push uh, the government wherever you are to, you know, ceasefire is the bare minimum, and I don't think it's enough anymore. But like ceasefire in the sense of like put the weapon down and like, so we calm down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, again, the material analysis, right? We saw this with, with Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Saudi Arabia is still genociding Yemen with, with a blockade. Right. And but Yemen, the, de- uh, the Houthis declared war on Israel. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that could, that could uh, fire back up, but the, the ceasefire in the meantime was a massive win for, for, uh, Yemenis who are dealing with their own genocide by starvation and still still are with the blockade. It was still a massive step to to get the ceasefire there. And, you know, so like what is happening in Palestine now is is very, you know, is is more along the lines like what been happening in Yemen for years that has not been happening since the ceasefire. And if you get a ceasefire in Palestine, you'd still have the same thing. You still have the blockade, the cutting off of water, electricity, um, you know, the, back to the situation we were in before with Gaza being basically a large concentration camp. This would but, be like stepping back from the brink. Yes, yes. And I think Biden is seeing that because he even announced today on November 2nd that like he thinks Israel should calm down a little bit and let humanitarian aid in well in between their airstrikes, which is bullshit. And he's placating Oh, it's the, it's it's, and such it's bullshit. Crap. But he's he's still seeing. I mean, <laughs> it's in, the Jimmy Carter, that, right? Yeah. Let, within let all that win. bullshit, though, win. you can still see that there's cracks forming. Of like, yeah. Are we really gonna go all in over this, or are we gonna use our energy and go all in some for something, you know, quote unquote worthwhile? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and. It's it's not going to mean anything. Those bullshit. Please let humanitarian aid in and all that shit. Like we know that's a load of crap, um, but we're not seeing any real step towards ceasefire and peace until the U.S. gets that fucking aircraft carrier 
out of the Mediterranean Sea. If the, the U.S. forced Israel to turn the internet back on within like an hour, if the, if the U.S. actually wanted a ceasefire, oh, yeah. it would have happened by now. Yeah, Everyone talks about how Israel pulls the strings in the U.S., but no, Israel is very still much our puppets. But there, there's another point of the crack in the armor, too, is the U.S. made Israel turn the internet back on within an hour, right? And that was clearly reaction to public outcry. Yeah. So. And Biden is now, like, shitting his pants, realizing that he's probably going to lose the election because no Muslim is ever going to vote for him again, and he won 2020 on razor-thin margins. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's, so, he's fucked, which, which is scary because we're going to get whichever of, of Trump or or the the um, you know fucking Maghawani gang. I don't think it's that scary though, because like literally, what could be worse than a genocide? <laughs> oh no, I I, I I get you, I get you, um, but but every one of these machinate, every one of these blows, I guess every presidential election things seem to get progressively worse <laughs> in this yeah. sense that, yeah, no, that the I, Democrats rump right and, and become more and more out and out Republican hawks, which they've always been, they've never been that different, but it becomes more bold and the Republicans become, and again, they've always been fascist, but they become more out and out open fascist. It just, it just jumps right every election. Yeah. And the bigger jumps, the much bigger jumps are when it flips party. So anytime well, so it's like, party, I get scared. At this point, I don't see a difference between flipping parties. So like by Biden literally I just mean that's when the biggest one, jumps happen. Yeah, yeah. But there might have been one or two things that Biden undid, but he didn't fundamentally undo anything. Yeah. And like I said, Biden is overseeing a genocide. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I, again, um, unless we're going to have a genocide within the borders of the United States. Um, well, uh, beyond the constant. And this is, the, again, these are these are the small differences in a constant of settler colonial genocide and empire. So, let, like, don't get me wrong. Most of the stuff happens regardless of any of that shit. Yeah. So I just I just those. People do the Occam's razor, and I think that only applies to like a subset of people in the public eye. Like, I think culture is more complex than that, and I'm glad we're reading Gramsci for that reason. Or not Occam's razor. What the fuck? I'm getting my things mixed up. The window, the 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 window, left and right window, um, whatever the fuck that one is. Occam's razor is the, the eliminate the unlikely possibilities that people think means pick the most likely. It fucking doesn't. It means eliminate the unlikely ones. <laughs> Nobody knows what fucking Occam's razor is. It drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I used it wrong. But the, the the window, the whatever that shifts left or right, like all those right heaves of that, as far as people running the government Overton and media, window. Overton window, that's it. That Overton window shift right. I think that's I think that's bad analysis. But for as much as it exists, for as much as like the idea, I think left and right is an imperfect analysis because you're not taking a material stance on each individual thing. But everybody that pans left and right, it, it, it just becomes a fascist talking point to ignore their fucking right, right wing. And, and, you know, so I, I just see it as imperfect, not as a bad measure. You know, there's a, there's an easy way to say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, the Soviet Union was left wing and Nazi Germany was right wing. There's your big difference. It matters, but I think it's imperfect analysis. Same thing with the Overton window. I think it's an, an incomplete analysis, but those rightward shifts, those happen in the party flipping election years, in my opinion, or at least what I've seen. And that's, that's what concerns me is every time that happens it's, but yeah, you're right. What can be worse than a genocide? You know? 
Um, except that I think the genocide will keep going and something else bad will happen with it. That's, that's my concern. Or at least I worry that I don't think that I hope that's not true. Go organize. <laughs> yes. Turn off the podcast and go organize. That's the whole fucking point of this is just to educate you for organization and, and encourage you for organization, but that none of this it can, can, shake a stick at organizing this is just a podcast uh, graham she is literally an organizer so maybe pick something up and on that note <laughs> that note to the reading um we didn't have anybody miss last time so i guess any of us can read um, yeah yeah okay i can I go okay go ahead uh Chapter 5, Fashion Reaction and Communist Strategy, 1924 to 1926. So after Mussolini took over, this is the introduction. These writings date from the period of Gramsci's leadership of the Communist Party of Italy, August 1924 to November 1926, which is when he was arrested, and deal principally with three subjects, fascism, developments in the Soviet Union, and prospects for revolution in Italy. In the summer of 1924, the fascist, the fascist movement was rocked by its, serious first, by its first serious crisis since coming to power. See the crisis of the middle classes and elements of the situation. Both essays we're going to read. Gramsci focused both on the immediate political crisis precipitated by the murder of the socialist parliament, parliamentary deputy Giacomo Mattiotti in June on what he saw as a breakdown in class alliance between the capitalists and the petty bourgeoisie, the middle classes referred to in the first pieces in this section. Whereas in 1921 to 1922, the middle classes, the petty bourgeoisie, had formed the mass base of the fascist movement by making an alliance with the capitalists against the working class. They were now being economically squeezed by fascism. This, Gramsci believed, would propel them towards an alliance with the proletariat. Uh, just for a quick cl cl clarification, Italy at this time didn't have a middle class like we usually think of today. Uh, the middle class, like we think of today, was invented by some German fuck named Weber who ruined social sciences. Um, and that conception of middle class came from the idea that your uh, class standing came from your income. So when we think of middle class, we think of like someone who makes a decent amount, but they're not super rich. They can generally afford to get by comfortably. Um, for this, middle classes are the petty bourgeoisie. So they are not workers. They own like maybe the grocery store on the corner. So they might employ someone to help them out, but they don't have like a lot of workers. They might employ like one or two people. So they're literally the middle class. They're the in-between of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. So they're actually very at risk of becoming proletarianized. Yeah, I was going to say they're, they're the first dominoes to, to fall in an economic crisis. Yeah, and we see that today even 
that that whole romanticized small business owner we always hear about in the U.S. Like that does actually still exist. They're very easy to proletarianize and break down. Uh, they don't exist as much as we like to believe. But Gramsci is arguing, and I am, and Trotsky actually also argues, and Polanskis also argues um, that these this was the social basis of uh, fascism, and because fascism is the alliance between the state and monopoly capital, once monopoly capital takes over and they start eating everything mm. and you have the degradation of the middle class, then you have a larger proletariat. So that's that's the whole middle classes that we're going to be hearing about. Yeah, it is kind of funny, too, in modern American language when you hear it. There's always elections we're talking about. They always appeal to middle class, middle class. They're talking about that income but it's the middle class that everybody sees themselves in right i'm not the top one percent bottom one percent i must be in the middle and it is kind of funny because then the policies they carry out when they appeal to those middle class are the fascist policies that the petty bourgeois would support in europe um so you know i so that's actually why you should read palancis and then you should read Stuart hall's essay called authoritarian populism because Mm -hmm. Palancis died as uh, neoliberalism was becoming instituted, but Stuart Hall wrote an essay called Authoritarian Populism, and then he also wrote something, a whole book uh, called Policing the Crisis that essentially modernizes what Palancis wrote, but Palancis has a whole list of characteristics of what petty bourgeois ideology is and how it fits into fascism. I, and I, I would be excited to read Palance's, uh, uh, or not Palance, Stuart Hall's uh, authoritarian um, populism. But I do worry that that becomes one of those works where people see the title and they use the modern, like propaganda nonsense, right-wing talking point definition of it and just assume things instead of reading it. I feel like that's well, going to be one where- Well, he's actually talking about Thatcher. He wrote this during Thatcher. Yeah. Um, and he was like, Thatcher is authoritarian. Yeah. But the authoritarianism, because it happens in a quote-unquote bourgeois democracy, is based on popular support. And then he uses Gramsci and he uses Palancis to talk about how this is how the right wing gained popular, like a popular social contract and so and popular support to institute all of these really, uh, you know, authoritarian rules to lock people up, throw them in jail, surveil them, get rid of all of these, uh, you know, economic policies that made it easier for people to live. Um, and really expand the state in a, a, a way that invaded everyone's privacy and freedom. Um, so it's a very unique take. Mm, uh, no, I, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. And it, it would be interesting to read it. Um, so that's, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to put that one on my list. But anyway, the Mattiotti murder generated a wave of popular protest and led to the formation of the other parliamentary parties, liberals, Republicans, Catholics, socialists, of an opposition known as the Aventine. Aventine. 
the Communist Party of Italy, initially the PCDI, initially joined the opposition committee, but withdrew when the other parties refused to back its demand for a general strike. Although some members of the party's right wing favored a collaboration with the Aventine, the majority, including Gramsci, did not because they considered the Aventine's opposition feebly legalitarian, constrained within the limits of bourgeois democracy, and because they believed that after a phase of democratic transition, the situation would turn to the advantage of the working class and be ripe for socialist revolution. With hindsight, it is easy to see that Gramsci's reading of the situation in 1924 overestimated the crisis of fascism and underestimated the depth of its political and ideological resources. One can also see that his attitude towards the legalitarian opposition was too sectarian under the circumstances, given that by the end of 1926, the fascists had installed a dictatorship and outlawed all of the opposition parties. Nonetheless, he was quite correct in characterizing the immediate prospect for the left as democratic rather than revolutionary, a characterization which was opposed by the left of the PCDI. And in recognizing the need to broaden the mass space of the anti-fascist opposition by applying the United Front tactic. Gramsci had acquired firsthand knowledge of the Russian situation during his time in Moscow, and developments in the Soviet Union constituted an essential point of reference for his strategic thinking as leader of the Italian party. In 1924, Lenin's successors in the party leadership were becoming bitterly divided over the course of the revolution. Trotsky criticized criticized both the bureaucratic stagnation of inner inner party life and the new economic policy NEP for retarding socialism by entrenching a market by entrenching a market economy in agriculture. He said the party was returning to the pre-1917 prejudice that the revolution had to pass through discrete phases and could not advance to socialism until capitalism had matured. He argued instead for the concept of permanent revolution, an uninterrupted transition from one phase to another sustained by waves of revolution abroad. Gramsci initially seems to have judged the divisions among the Bolsheviks from Trotsky's viewpoint. He wrote to Togliatti and others from Vienna in February 1924, quote, demanding a greater intervention of the proletarian elements in the life of the party and the diminution or diminishment in the powers of the bureaucracy. They, meaning Trotsky and the left opposition, want basically to ensure the socialist and proletarian character of the revolution and prevent a gradual transition to that democratic dictatorship. Carapace for developing uh, capitalism, which was still the program of Zinoviev and company in 1917, end quote from Selected Political Works, Volume 2. He was also alarmed by the ferocity of Stalin's criticisms of Trotsky. Writing to his wife, he remarked, quote, I do not know Trotsky's article nor Stalin's. I cannot understand the the latter's attack, which seems to me highly irresponsible and dangerous. And this is from uh, Letters of Gramsci, but that's published only in Italian. 
He was to express similar anxieties again in 1926. See, letter to the Central Committee of the CPSU. We're actually going to read that. That letter was never actually given. Uh, he was to express similar anxieties again in 1926 when he sent a letter to the CPSU, by which time the inner party crisis had become acute. By now, however, his political judgment of the opposition had changed. He had come to accept the pro-NEP positions of the majority, meaning Stalin and Bukharin, against the positions of the joint opposition, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev. Yet his criticisms of, criticisms of the CPSU's handling of its internal divisions remained outspoken. Togliati, who received uh, Gramsci's letter in Moscow, did not forward it to the Central Committee, though he showed it to Bukharin. Uh, for his subsequent correspondence with Gramsci on this issue, see Selected Political Works, Volume 2. Soviet discussions on the agrarian question, as well as the formation in 1923 of the Peasant International, Turn, the Creston Turn, and the Common Turn's call for Bolshevization, which included the building of, a com of Communist Party cells in rural areas, all influence Gramsci's decisive reorientation of PCDI policy around slogans of a workers and peasants government and a federal workers and peasants republic. In particular, he seems to have been influenced by Bukharin's conception of a block of workers and peasants. Bukharin argued that since the majority of the world's population were peasants, world revolution had to be based on alliances between the industrial proletariat and the colonial peasantry, in which the former class ex exercised hegemony, i.e. leadership of the alliance. Bukharin put forward this concept against Trotsky's idea of proletarian dictatorship over the peasantry, which he claimed was couched too narrowly in too narrowly Western terms, i.e. in terms of the revolutionary possibilities of the advanced industrial countries only. The innovative qualities of Gramsci's position within the PCDI in this period can perhaps be most seen most clearly from its two most famous political documents. The Lyon's thesis, written with Togliati, and some, and some aspects of the Southern Question, of which Gramsci left unfinished an unfinished draft at the time of his arrest in November 1926. The discussion of, in the former of fascism and party strategy in relation to the peculiarities of the Italian situation and class structure is a model of concrete Marxist analysis. In the latter, Gramsci relates contemporary Soviet discussions of the worker and peasant alliance brilliantly to Italian conditions and adumbrates the themes of hegemony and the intellectuals which will become central to the prison notebooks. I can't find my air horn. Hold on. Wait, there it is. Bam, bam. <laughs> um, so it's it's interesting that that uh, Gramsci took a similar turn that we read about um, in Black Bolshevik from um, Harry Haywood too, and and according to Black Bolshevik was that the way the population seemed to went, where you know. 
permanent revolution was presented, hey, we're going to pass right through, you know, all the way to revolution and we're going to need whole world by it. Everyone's going to do it together versus, you know, the, the social country and, and people initially seemed to buy into that permanent revolution. And then as the people like hashed out or, or, you know, saw things in real time or whatever, they came to um, see, see Stalin's side on that. And, and so did Harry Haywood and so did Gramsci. So um, there's something about an application about permanent revolution that doesn't quite work out again you know uh, one of the, the many reasons we're not Trotskyists although I think Trotskyists it's less about the permanent revolution and more about trying to couch communism and something pro-west half the time just so goddamn pretentious about it and so goddamn pretentious about it and obsessed with newspapers but anyway um but um but there's obviously some merit to that of like, why do we have to roll back to the stage by stage thing? And so I think it's more like the whole world buying in and everybody doing it together. If it was like socialism in one country, but we go right through to the revolution and not worry about this stage and still account for development, you know, there might've been something in permanent revolution that, that, that maybe I haven't come across that, that would worry about couching the development as well too, because the, the development was a big part of, um, you know, the Soviet Union's turn, but it did leave a lot out there that would cause conflicts uh, with centralization later. Um, but so maybe there is something about, you know, and, and we can also look back and say, okay, well, there's, you know, the bureaucracy of the Soviet Union could be criticized, things like that. So there's something there that that appeals at first and appealed at first in real time. But we know now it just doesn't, it did not win the will of the people because everyone that kind of saw it other than a few people were like, you know, well, a small sect of people were like, eh, no, you know, um, and it is, it is interesting every time I run into that course, you know, cause it's like, Oh, <laughs> there's not very appealing to socialism in one country. Ah, shit. Everybody comes around to it, you know? And it's, it's, it's just a wonder that it went that way from so many different resources, you know? Um, but with that, I know it's kind of short. We only did three pages, but we got through a section and we're going to wrap up. We've done a couple of long ones. We're going to do a little shorter one today. Um, so this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books, part of Chunk Alluded Network. Uh, there's a number of ways you get a hold of us. Most of that can be found uh, in the link tree. It's linktr.ee slash Chunk Network. Uh, that includes the Red Row Construction and Wheelchair Drive. Um, so with that, we are still at 21,000 of the 30,000. That last 10,000 is for the wheelchair um, so we need that badly. Um, there is also, you know, links to, uh, hex bear, uh, blue sky and, uh, Twitter. Uh, we are doing TikTok now <laughs> with, uh, with chunk of network. And then of course, Mark madness pod. We also have a Twitter. Um, we're about to set up a, a TikTok there. I've got it set up. I've just got to start posting. Um, and, uh, you could also get a hold of us, uh, at Mark's madness pod, on, on Twitter or Max Mar Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com or Chunkaluta uh, org at gmail. I think that's one of the few things that isn't in the link tree. Um, or you can get a, a hold of us on Discord. The, the Mark's Madness Discord is public. The link is in our Twitter bio or X bio, whatever. Um, and uh, there is also um, for uh, certain ways in Chunkaluta uh, uh, Discord. Um, but yeah, just follow the link tree makes it easy. It's a lot simpler now. <laughs> um, and obviously we are in a time of revolution. We are in a time of 
cracks starting to be seen in the world order. We are in a time where people are facing genocide. Get out there and organize. There's no two ways about it. Get out and organize. None of this means anything unless you're organizing. I, we're a little too far in the book for me to do the full disclaimer. But as I do say in that disclaimer, um, you know, Praxis is theory in action, and theory is nothing without praxis. They go hand in hand. They're tied at the hip. We can give you the theory through the podcast. You got to go out there and do the praxis. You got to go do it. Um, so, with that, this has been Mark's Madness Pod, part of Chunk of Lucha Network. My name is David. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.